This is the Shift Podcast. This is Martin Strong filling in for Shane Hewitt. And coming up on the Shift Podcast, is cash a thing of the past? Shelly Santana, assistant professor of marketing at Bentley University, helps us understand the psychology behind our money and if it's time to move on from physical money. Take a look back at the music of 2023 with Alan Cross. He walks us through the highs and lows of the year, how TikTok became a titan in the music industry, and what we can expect to hear on our radios in 2023. And are you okay with Trump trading cards? This is the Shift Podcast. This is Martin Strong in for Shane. And I haven't seen one yet, but Canada is getting a new toonie this month. It'll look like the old toonie, the $2 coin, but instead of the outer ring being silver, it's going to be black, and that will surround an image of Queen Elizabeth, and it's meant to be a tribute to the queen who died earlier this year, of course. The mint says the black color is meant to represent mourning, and uh, they're being rolled out through December. Have not seen one yet, and maybe you've seen one, but it got me thinking, when was the last time I actually used a toonie, especially since COVID? Uh, I feel like I haven't dealt much with paper money or coins at all in the past two years. And it's becoming really, really common just to use cards or your phone. So is it all part of cash money being phased out? Will we soon never, ever touch money? other than through cards and our phones. And it might be convenient, but is this a problem? Shelly Santana is a marketing professor at Bentley University, just outside of Boston, and she's an expert on the psychology of money. Shelly, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So the end of physical money, paper yeah. and coins, we've been talking about this for a long time. Uh, is this inevitable? I don't know that it's inevitable. I do think that there's a, a market shift in that direction, um, but there are still many consumers that are very tied to using cash, either out of necessity or out of preference. So um, I do think there's a cohort of consumers that will kind of linger in society that prefer to use cash um, if it, even if it's just for certain types of purchases or in, or certain sizes of transactions. Right. Um, and what do you see things playing out like? What do you picture in the future? Will we wake up one day and suddenly it's really inconvenient to use cash? We'll go into stores and they won't accept cash? What, what do you picture? Yeah, so there, there's actually um, a number of stores that have tried to pass um, policies in their stores that where they do not accept cash. And they're, um, one of the main arguments for it is that it's a better customer experience. The, the lines move faster, the, um, the cashiers don't have to count out change. You, know, you don't have someone that's sort of coming and taking out the cash drawer and sort of doing these shift changes. I'm sort of dating myself, explaining <laughs> what that looks like. Um, so there have been some stores that really want to do this as a policy. Some legislations have actually uh, there has actually been some legislation passed that say you cannot refuse to accept cash. And the main reason is that um, one, 
it, it can inadvertently discriminate against consumers who that we refer to as unbanked or underbanked. So they do not have access to a credit card or a debit card the way many of us um, have. So they primarily rely on cash. Um, and the other reason is that some consumers actually just prefer to pay with uh, prefer to pay with cash either for privacy reasons or um, because they find it to be easier. So there are some consumers um, that really do continue to want to prefer to pay with cash. And then sort of conceptually, I do think it's a little bit odd that our money here in the States says, you know, legal tender uh, for all purchases, and yet you cannot use it. So, you know, cash is still the official legal tender of the United States. Right. And and that's a, a, a word, actually two words that I learned today, uh, unbanked and underbanked. Mm -hmm. When I was reading about this, people who don't have access, as you say, to to credit cards and debit cards, and in many cases just don't have bank accounts. Exactly. And the numbers uh, are kind of alarmingly high. It, I don't think it's as bad in Canada, but it's still a problem. And in the United States, I read it was 5% of the population is unbanked or underbanked. Yeah, so 5%, around 5% is the typical unbanked number. And then the underbanked number, depending on the statistics that you look at, can be anywhere from another 10 to 15%. So it's a, it's a non-trivial number of consumers that fall into that bucket. Yeah, because it seems uh, hard for me to imagine what life would be like without a credit card. And I guess... Even as we're looking into the future, right now, in the present, there are a lot of people who are severely disadvantaged by the fact that they don't have access to a lot of this virtual banking, right? Exactly, yes. And what you see in the data is that there tends to be this almost like a U-shaped preference for cash, um, if you think about it by age group. So very young people tend to use cash a lot and older people tend to use cash a lot. And then in the middle, right? So once you get to about 25-ish until you're about 55, that's very high credit and debit card usage years of our lives. Right, and I'll ask this question. I, I kind of know the answer, I guess, but what did COVID do to this question of uh, money? Because I feel like since the COVID lockdowns began, I, pretty much stopped using cash. I can't remember the last time I used a, a bill, for example, to pay for something. Right. Um, so, you know, we were we were on this this trajectory to becoming less and less dependent on cash. And there are surveys that come out on a regular basis on the consumer payment survey and it and each year fewer and fewer people pay for any transaction in a given week with cash. What COVID did was accelerate that trend. And there's some data from Square, the payments processor, that suggests that the, the trend towards cashlessness was accelerated by about three years over the first like 18 months of COVID. So um, there was this rapid adoption of cashless payments out of necessity by and large. And what we've seen since the lockdowns have eased and, and the you know, economy has opened up, that that habit has has really stuck, and so this this adoption of cashless payments, whether it's debit or credit or digital wallets or what have you, has been pretty sticky, and and more sticky than I think uh, many people anticipated. And I'm guessing the the businesses, the stores, they love this because, as you say, it makes it quicker and it's makes their accounting simpler. I guess. 
Um, but are there groups that are really, really pushing back against this? And uh, and what's the response been like from government? Yeah. So, you know, like like we were talking about earlier, the 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 consumer advocates that are arguing on behalf of the unbanked and underbanked are really the the vocal segments of society that are pushing back against a purely cashless um, economy because it does sort of marginalize an arguably already marginalized population. And so if you don't have the, the ability to actually have a checking account, which is what you need to have a debit card, um, then that makes it very hard and even more difficult to operate in this society. So that's one group of people. And that's primarily who the legislatures um, have been responding to in passing legislation that um, requires firms and, and companies to accept cash as a form of payment. For example, in the city of Boston, you cannot refuse to accept cash as a form of payment, even through the pandemic. Uh, the mayor and the governor and the attorney general sort of held the line on that. Right. And I, I the guess... other group are the other group um, is privacy advocates. So yeah. as yeah. we, you know, as we become more and more digitized and we pay with um, more and more things with debit and credit, that leaves a, a digital footprint behind of everything that you have purchased and where and at what time and what have you. And so for people who are very passionate about consumer privacy, that's the other segment that really pushes back against a completely cashless economy. Yeah, and I guess it, it makes it hard for people to to pay with cash and get out of uh, paying taxes and or or whatever. And uh, I can see the uh, disadvantage there. Uh, but I guess I mean, what are some legitimate forms of 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 consumer privacy that that you think need to be looked out for in terms of of paying with cash and things like that maybe some examples yeah i mean i think you know the a consumer preference is always one that i'm i'm going to lean towards right like if you just prefer to pay with cash you should have that option um i do know you know in some cases consumers have said I don't necessarily, there's actually science that, that, you know, some research that shows that consumers don't actually like to pay in cash uh, for some items versus other types of items. So like, I don't want to be reminded that I bought, you know, a giant cookie <laughs> and have that be reminded <laughs> on my credit card. And so uh, I'd much rather pay for cash and just sort of forget about that whole thing that happened. Um, you know? um, then there's also, there's also an argument for, self-control and budgeting and self-regulation by using cash, right? So if you go out to a store or to an event or to a ball game and, you know, you only bring the cash that you have on you, then that's a very helpful and useful way to manage your spending and not let that spending and that occasion and that environment sort of get away with you. That's a great point. Uh, Shelly Santana is a marketing professor at Bentley University in Massachusetts, just outside of Boston, and an expert on the psychology of money. We're, th we're talking about uh, the the end of physical money and how long that's going to take. And is it is it going to mean the end where there is no physical money at all? And you mentioned just now about... Uh, about budgeting and how actually having money in your hand is is a really helpful thing and you can see it. And when you're a little kid, I remember, you know, you'd, you'd stack up the quarters until you had enough to get what you wanted. Um, and I also notice that now that parking meters are purely online, that I do it, mm -hmm. you know, through my phone, um, the scale 
of what parking costs has drastically gone up. And, yes. and if it's $2, it feels fine. But if I was putting $2 for the quarters in the machine, that would have been crazy before. So how, you know, in terms of the psychology of money, um, how does paperless commerce, I, you've kind of already answered this, but how does paperless commerce affect uh, our spending and what we're yeah. wanting? So this is a great question. And it's really interesting because there's literally decades of research um, and there's a, a very robust finding that consumers spend more money when we pay in non-cash ways. So whether it's debit or credit or smart card or gift card or what have you, when we, when we are not spending cash, we spend more money. When we spend cash, we spend less money. So oftentimes you'll see a lot of financial literacy programs actually begin by having people learn how to budget and, and budgeting with cash and literally walking around with cash for a week so that people can get their bearings around how much do things cost. Like there's been studies that show that when people walk out of a grocery store and they've paid for their groceries with a credit card, they don't really know how much they spent, right? But the people who paid with cash do. <laughs> um, so... Um, you know, the, the act of physically paying with cash and physically parting with it is just so much more salient for consumers that it really does remind us um, and make us pause for just that little nanosecond around, do we actually need this thing? Right. And I have a couple of kids who are just becoming adults. And that's a real concern is their financial literacy and, you know, not getting into debt and and just, you know, budgeting and all those things. Do you do you think that this uh, is going to put a lot of pressure and, and challenge on the financial literacy of young people? I really do. And and, I you know, I think we are clearly moving in a direction that we're more cashless. Um, and so I think maybe the ways that you and I may have learned around financial literacy and budge budgeting is going to be different for this digitally native cohort of consumers that are coming up. So it's less about, at least in my case, how much money do you have in your wallet? It really just becomes more of like a math exercise of like, you start with 100 and now you've got 20, right? Like <laughs> it's, a, it's a different thing than versus I had... 10 $10 bills in my wallet. And now I only have two tall, two $10 bills in my wallet. So the principle is the same, but the way we actually go about teaching that and the ramifications of it, um, I do think are significant. And I also think that we're going to need industry um, to really help. How do you get people to budget? Because when you run out of cash, you run out of cash, you cannot spend anymore but you can spend more on your debit card or your credit card if you've exceeded your, um, your balance or if you've exceeded your credit limit, right? And there's severe penalties for that. And so I think those are the things that consumers and younger consumers are really gonna have to understand what, you know, what is interest and, and what does it mean to an overdraft account? <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's so funny for me because I, I, I've gotten so used to the way it is now, but then having this conversation reminds me of when I was really young, like uh, in my twenties, if I wanted to have money for the weekend, I had to get to the bank by 10 to six. Yes. So I could take the money out. And it was yep. just around the time of bank machines. But before then, I mean, it was as simple as that. If you didn't get to the bank before six o'clock closing time on Friday, you had no money for the weekend. Right. Yep. 
Um, and that's not a very fun weekend no. <laughs> in your 20s. <laughs> Especially in your 20s. Yeah. Um, and uh, what about, let's talk a little bit about Bitcoin um, and the attitudes about Bitcoin. I mean, how does Bitcoin fit into this conversation? Because it, I, I get the feeling that, because right now everyone's talking about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. I should say cryptocurrency because Bitcoin is just one particular brand of cryptocurrency. But it sounds right. like it's it's you know on its way out. But but I also noticed that Bitcoin is on a bit of a rally. So I guess cryptocurrency is not going anywhere, and it will be I part of this. I don't think cryptocurrency is going anywhere. Um, but I do think consumers are you know with each of these um, new and notable newsworthy events like you know, the FTX exchange, um, people are becoming more and more educated about what crypto is and what crypto isn't. And so for crypto, to me, it's less of a currency in the sense of I'm going to buy a gallon of milk with my, you know, 0. 0.00002 crypto, right? right. Um, and, and it's more of like an asset, right? A speculative asset that we invest in. Um, but that's also a very different mindset. And that real that really does require consumer financial literacy um, on a completely different level than just mere budgeting. Yeah, it's generally something that should it shouldn't be your entire portfolio of Bitcoin. Definitely not. And and you know, and unfortunately we do see um consumers investing in crypto as an opportunity to sort of make a lot of money very quickly. Um, but when crypto goes wrong, um, those are often the consumers that don't have um, a lot of latitude in their other financial aspects of their lives in order to absorb that, absorb that kind of a loss. And so that's a, that's a real challenge. We're talking to Shelly Santana, a marketing professor at Bentley University in Massachusetts and an expert on the psychology of money. And one of the areas that you've done a lot of research on is, I guess I'll call it a phenomenon, the pay what you can phenomenon. Yes. And I'm noticing a lot of the comedians that I like, the musicians that I like, they have Patreon accounts. And you yeah. basically, and if you like them, you give them five or $10 a month. And you don't really have to, but right. a lot of people do. I mean, would you call this a phenomenon that we never had before people paying sometimes more than they have to? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I have done some research on this and it's really interesting because when you think about it logically, like why would anyone pay anything that they didn't have to pay for, right? Um, and the, our research suggests that there is a type of consumer out there, um, someone that we refer to as a, a communal consumer who thinks about not just themselves, but the other person that's part of this exchange. And how does my action or inaction affect this other person? And it's those people who kind of keep the artist, the comedian, the, you know, the painter afloat because they're thinking beyond sort of their own individual self-interest from an economic standpoint. Yeah, it's really interesting. It almost seems unintuitive uh, because what I remember when Napster came in and, and suddenly music was online, music basically was free. And, right. and even, even now it sort of feels free because you're only paying a little bit a month and you can listen to whatever you want. But right. it, it's funny how we just sort of evolved to to, you know, to pay extra because we feel we should. Yeah. I mean, there is, you know, definitely a social norm associated with it. Like you should pay something kind of like you should tip your, 
your server. Right. And I guess um, you don't have to tip, but you don't have to, but you, you know, you probably should. It's a, it's do. a polite, and many, many people think it's the polite thing to do. Um, but in this case, you know, when you understand that, like what I'm doing is actually funding this individual person um, and I care about their art and I want to see it keep going. And if I, and if I don't do that, then this art will go away. And then I have to revert back to my, you know, my next outside option, which is a fixed price product, most likely that's going to cost more, most likely, um, then you begin to see like why people would continue to um, pay, pay what they want in these environments. Right. And you've done a lot of research into gift cards and it's, it's Christmas. And uh, I mean, gift cards are a, a funny thing with my kids when they were little. Um, that's what they gave their other friends at birthday parties were gift cards. And uh, right. I guess gift, the phenomenon of gift cards is not going away. No, not at all. If anything, they're probably becoming even more popular for a couple of reasons. One is that um, it allows you to not give cash. So there is kind of a stigma around giving cash as a gift, um, even though you know, we, we think that, you know, a $20 gift card and a $20 bill should be thought of the same way, but um, people prefer a gift card often um, and people prefer to give a gift card often because it's got that, you know, gift uh, halo over it. <laughs> um, and so, so gift cards are definitely one of the, one of the forms of payment that are on the rise. And then you can increasingly like add them to your digital wallets. And again, going back to our earlier conversation about cashlessness, it's just another way to enable online and offline transactions in a, in a very frictionless way. Yeah. And it's interesting. The whole psychology of money is so interesting. And it is funny how you give somebody a $20 bill, which is way more convenient because they don't have to go to Best Buy or whatever the right. gift card is, but they like the gift card because it doesn't have that sort of, I don't know, dirty feeling or something. <laughs> Yeah, right. It just doesn't, it's, you know, oftentimes consumer report, consumers report that when they're given money as a gift, it feels thoughtless, it feels cold, it feels impersonal, you know, but if I just convert that to a, a Visa gift card and give it to you, then all of a sudden, all of those sort of negative associations go away. Yeah, that's, uh, it's so funny. And I, I, I could talk to you uh, all night because uh, the psychology of money, I guess we all have very weird ideas of money because it, there's so much pressure on it. And uh, we all have these sort of weird ideas and we develop them and, and we get them from our parents. And, exactly. Uh, it's interesting. But thank you so much for talking to us. And I, uh, I wish you all the best and uh, have a great Christmas. Thanks so much. Same to you. I enjoyed being here. Yeah, thank you very much. Shelly Santana is a marketing professor at Bentley University, which is just outside of Boston, and she's an expert on the psychology of money. And you talk about how weird and deep the psychology of money can get. It's interesting. And the idea that we're getting rid of paper money, and it, it is a, a troubling thought in many ways because it is very convenient, but in other ways, for example, by the way, our, our text line is 877-399-9898, and we got a text. Uh, this person says, I used to be a Calgary Roughnecks season ticket holder and would also go to the occasional Flames and Stampeders games as well. I gave it up because Calgary Sports and Entertainment will not accept my cash money for tickets, food, and beverages. This is a hill I'm willing to die on. 
And, you know, it's an extreme position to take, but it makes sense. If they don't take your money, I mean, it is legal tender. And it, I guess it's, it's, you know, it's more convenient. And it probably costs stores and organizations a lot less when they don't have to deal with money. But I think uh, money is money, and it should be accepted. Uh, they should make an exception for people who want to use cash money. I mean, Ryan, uh, you're, you're a young dude, and uh, all the, you know, the young people I know are pretty comfortable with the debit cards and, mm -hmm. and, and all that stuff. But when was the last time you had a, you know, a handful of cash? Uh, actually, you know, I would say infrequently, but I still use it. Uh, it's nice for bars. It's still just way easier than getting the debit machine at a bar, just handing a 20. Uh, and the, the thing with cash is it kind of feels like extra money because you yeah. use your debit card so much. And then, you know, you're out, you're buying subway. You look, you're like, Oh, I've got, oh, I've got $11 in cash here. It's like free money. Of course it's not. It just feels like a treat. So every now and then I still see the use of cash, especially, uh, for going out and concerts and such like that. So, uh, yeah, I always like to keep a couple of toonies and loonies on hand if possible. Yeah, I've learned that the hard way because uh, about a week ago, I was at a big grocery store and you needed a loony to get the shopping cart out of bondage. You know how they have them all chained up like they're in a prison chain gang or something and you got to put the dollar in and then you get the shopping cart and I didn't have a dollar. And uh, I had to go in, and there was a big lineup for the customer service uh, department. And uh, so I ended up just using a hand thing, and I was full of oat milk, and it was really heavy. <laughs> but I think I'm... I'll get you. Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to whine now. This is The Shift Podcast. And this is Martin Strong in for Shane, and it's been a pretty interesting year in music. Lots of interesting trends. The return of Kate Bush, that was thanks to the TV show Stranger Things. Uh, the old gothy punk band, The Cramps, got a boost when the song Goo Goo Muck, what a great song that is, was used in the Netflix show Wednesday. Lots of good new music, too, and to help us go through the year in music and look ahead to 2023, music journalist, and all-around music guy, the host of the ongoing history of new music, Alan Cross, is with us. Thanks for being here, Alan. I appreciate that. It's always fun to look back on the year to try to figure out what the heck happened over the last 12 months. And uh, music is, is no exception to that. Yeah. And let's talk about uh, the battle between the old and the new. It seems like the last few years, it has been a battle of... Uh, Older established artists, I mean, I'm looking at the Beatles. They don't seem to be going anywhere. They're more popular than ever. Kate Bush is back. But then there's, you know, Taylor Swift and Lizzo. So would you say there's a healthy mix of the old and new in 2022? Would you say that was the case? Well, the, the balance has changed. Uh, if you look at the streaming numbers, you will see that the market share, the share of ear, as we call it, has declined for new material. And when I say new material, we're talking songs that are less than two years old. Uh, for whatever reason, the amount of listening being done to new songs has dropped. And that could be that contemporary music is just in the bit of a doldrums. It's not catching you know people's attention like it normally does. 
or this could be uh, the effect of technology with uh, streaming services making hundreds, at least a hundred million songs available to anybody with just a few pokes at their phone. And because so many songs are available, more people are exploring uh, songs from different eras than they, they ever had. Um, all they really care about is, is it a good song? Not when was it made or, or you know, what genre it's from. That's a, a byproduct of streaming. And uh, the other thing is that uh, if you listen to a song that was recorded today in terms of audio quality, it doesn't sound much different than a song that was recorded in, say, 1971. They still both sound, in terms of audio quality, like they could have been recorded yesterday. So if we go back, like, say, 30 years to 1992, and if we were to listen, if we are in 1992, and if we were to listen to a song that was 30 years earlier, well, it would sound old, you know, because yeah. of the technology and because of the songwriting, because of, you know, a whole bunch of different things. So what's happened is that the available music uh, to that to to everybody is is much greater than it's ever been before. So there is a certain amount of dilution that comes with uh, the the older songs or with the newer songs being pushed out by the older songs. There's another thing too that we should really think about, and that has to do with these big companies that are buying up catalogs of what we call heritage artists, like Bruce Springsteen and Bob Dylan, and so on and so on. Those uh, companies have to make their money back somehow. And the way they do that is by what they call unlocking the potential of these songs. So these songs are now more ubiquitous than they've been in a very long time. They're in movies, they're in TV shows, they're in TV commercials. Other younger artists are covering these songs. And that is maybe pushing out some of the brand new material as well. It's, it's an interesting sort of possible shift that we're going to have to watch in 2023. Yeah. And I guess it, it can be a little bit, uh, I don't know, alarming maybe, but at the same time, I guess as an older guy, when I see Kate Bush, for example, uh, just one of my favorite records of all time, Hounds of Love with Running Up That Hill, um, just a great, great album, suddenly being embraced by young people. I, I love that. And there's part of me that just thinks it's a great song and it should be popular now, but do you see this as a as a as a problem? Uh, the recorded music industry might see it as a problem, but at the same time, they're making most of their money on what they call catalog music, which is music that's more than two years old, and that's where the power of the record labels, the major record labels, for sure, really is held with catalog music. So they're happy to see this old music being. Um, you know, exercised uh, yeah. in a way that makes them money. Exercised, uh, but, I like yeah, that. but at the same time, if you're not creating new classics by promoting new music and creating new stars, well, you're going to eventually exhaust your catalog because you're not adding to it. So uh, we, we are going through an interesting technological, sociological demographic transition when it comes to music right now. And I don't think we'll really see what this all means for maybe another five or 10 years. Yeah, that's an interesting point about just sort of using up the catalog. And I mean, it's funny, you mentioned that if you were in the in the 80s listening to Kate Bush, and then you were listening to Kate Bush in the 80s, and then you listened to something that was as old as Kate Bush is now, 
you'd be listening to like a Robert Johnson 78 or something. Well, yeah, you would be listening to Percy Faith and a theme from a summer place or all, all this pre-Beatles stuff. Yeah, it's you know, interesting. It would, it would be in mono and it wouldn't have electric guitars and big amplifiers and effects pedals and synthesizers and any of that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's funny. I have a daughter who's in her very early 20s and she was showing me her Spotify list of the top three songs. And in the top three was Buddy Greco. And I don't know if you remember, Buddy. He was like an old lounge singer. And he, his version of The Lady is a Tramp was on a, a, a young woman in her early 20s who has really great musical taste. And that was one of her top three listened songs. You know, I'm not terribly surprised by that because I saw some statistics saying that a lot of young people have discovered Billie Holiday. Mm -hmm. And she is one of the great discoveries on their Spotify playlists. Right. So let's talk about some of the more forward-looking trends in 2022 with Alan Cross, our guest. Um, TikTok just sort of, I mean, I guess it's been like this for a couple of years, but TikTok had a huge year. And how has TikTok, you know, changed the way we listen to music? Do you remember running home from school in 1981, 1982, 1983 and turning on the TV and hoping that MTV or Much Music would show the video that you wanted to see and you would sit there and watch and wait and wait and wait and wait until your video came up yeah. and when it finally did, you were really excited. But in the meantime, you saw a whole bunch of music, whole bunch of music videos, artists that you did not know that looked pretty cool. Uh, and then you went out and you bought those records as a result of seeing their videos. The effect on the music industry with the birth of MTV and Much Music was huge. It just turbocharged everything. And of course, the CD came along and there was about 15 or 16 years of plenty where money flowed like water in the music industry. So the effect of music videos back in the early 80s is more or less the same kind of effect that we're having with TikTok on the young people of today as they get excited about music and trends and culture and all that sort of stuff. Where we got our stuff from MTV and Much Music, they're getting the equivalent stuff from TikTok. Now, what's rather interesting is that TikTok, which is owned by a company called ByteDance, which is based out of China, they have a streaming music service called Reso, and Reso only operates in Brazil, India, and Indonesia. What they want to do is uh, integrate Reso with TikTok. Right now, if you see a cool song on TikTok and you want the whole thing, you have to leave TikTok and go to Spotify or Apple Music or Tidal or Amazon or YouTube or wherever else. If ByteDance succeeds in integrating Reso with TikTok, you won't have to leave the app. You'll just click another button or whatever, and you'll be taken to the whole song or the whole video or the whole, whole whatever. Now, if that happens, and TikTok becomes this all-encompassing, all-servicing ecosystem for music, it is unfathomable what kind of impact that could end up having. The fly in the ointment here is that some of the record companies aren't really keen about working out a streaming and licensing deal with TikTok and ByteDance. I'm not really sure why, but until they can get past that, this Reso rollout, TikTok music, which is what we think we're going to call it, is, is uh, not happening. But I would not be surprised if it does happen in 2023, because there is so much potential money for artists and managers and, and, and record labels to make here 
that uh, I can't see them walking away from this opportunity. So in 2022, who were the artists who really, really took advantage of TikTok? Uh, well, that's an odd question because there are TikTok artists, there are mainstream artists, and there were a couple of artists that crossed over between the two. Uh, TikTok artists tend to burn very quickly, just the nature of the, uh, of the platform. And a few of them do cross over. Lizzo, for example, is, is, was the queen of TikTok in, in 2022. No one had more stuff streamed uh, on TikTok than, than she did. But then I could you know, ramble off a whole bunch of artist names that you have never heard of before because they never made it outside the platform. But if you were a TikTok aficionado, you know all about them. It's it's a very it's like there's two parallel universes happening right now with a little bit of crossover in between. And are the are these artists like say these artists that that we've never heard of are are they monetizing TikTok in a big way? Are they making lots of money off TikTok? Unclear. Some of them are. Uh, some of them are, be, are being signed by record labels. At which point they give up. Uh, at least 50% of their revenues in order to be mainstream, uh, marketed to the mainstream. Um, it, it's, it's hard to say. Uh, it, it, again, we're dealing with the, with the Wild West here, and it doesn't, there's not one-size-fits-all uh, one explanation for, for what's going on. But uh, again, something we got to watch in 2023. TikTok is the most, every month, more people download TikTok than any other app out there. And uh, it, it all really depends on whether or not TikTok can maintain their, their growth trajectory. A big problem right now is that the United States government is looking into the platform thinking, hmm, this is a company owned by communist, uh, a, a company in uh, communist China. Are they harvesting data from young people in the United States? And I don't know if you've been following the news, but there's a, a bill before, a bipartisan bill before the uh, Congress in, in DC that is looking into um, whether or not TikTok is actually spying on Americans. Canadians are watching this case. We haven't done anything about it uh, yet, but we're watching to see what the Americans do. We may take our lead from it. Yeah, it's a creepy thought. Uh, Alan Cross is with us, the host of the Ongoing History of New Music, a music journalist, all-around uh, music guy. We're talking about TikTok. Uh, and where does this leave Spotify and Apple Music? How How is the... How, what's the health of streaming? And we hear a lot about how the artists aren't fairly paid. What do you see in 2023 for the streaming services? Well, streamings are not going away. Um, streaming services are not going away. Um, I, I've been calling, I've been saying, predicting that there's going to be a period of consolidation. There are probably, you know, a good 30 streaming services out there. A lot of them are, are for example, in different parts of the world. For example, there's one for Africa, there's one for the Arab world, there's one for, uh, there's a couple for India. Uh, there's a bunch in China that we don't know about. But in terms of the the Western world, we have quite a few. Um, Spotify, Apple Music, Tidal, Napster, Amazon, YouTube, and you know a, a few others. A Deezer is another one. Uh, you have to wonder how many, how long these, these uh, uh, streaming services can remain distinct and separate without some sort of consolidation because they cost a lot of money. The way they're structured financially, based on their licensing agreements, make it very difficult for them to find synergies and to find, um, you know, to increase margins. So, uh, you know, streaming is 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 here. It is, uh, can, you know, uh, in Canada, the number of songs streamed year over year is up thirteen percent every week. If you look at the statistics. 
Uh, it's 13% greater than the year than the week, uh, the same week the, the year before. Um, so it's not going down. The U.S., for example, earlier, it was it late November, I think, for the first time passed one trillion streams for the year. Wow. So uh, people are into it, um, whether or not it could be made uh, to pay. You know, I don't think any of the streaming music services are actually making money because of the way the licensing agreements work. And of course, we're going to keep hearing about how artists aren't being made, aren't um, being, aren't making a lot of money from streaming unless your numbers are astronomical. That's an entirely different uh, conversation because people think that, oh, I've been streamed a million times. I should be making a lot of money. Well, in the world of streaming, a million streams is nothing. You need to have a hundred million streams to, to even start thinking about making real money and maybe 500 million or a billion. And again, you know, not everybody gets to have that kind of, uh, of success. That's a, those are Drake numbers. Those are weekend numbers. Those are Justin Bieber numbers. Yeah. You need to get your song on stranger things or something. Uh, like yeah. That. You know, <laughs> yeah. Or, or, or you need to be in, um, an emerging market. Um, the, one of the biggest stars of the year is bad bunny, the Latin, uh, singer who uh, made $436 million U.S. touring just since August. He made $436 million wow. over 43 shows. And he is, as a Latin artist, he uh, he travels very well and is um, is easily the, the biggest streaming artist. Um, I'm pretty sure he's the biggest streaming artist in the world right now. Yeah, I think he set a record for, for non-English streaming on Spotify. Yeah. Something like that. So Something like that, yeah. And that's Bad Bunny. Um, and speaking of Spotify, one of the the big stories, it seems like a long time ago, I think it was in January, February of 2022, Neil Young storming off of Spotify because uh, he didn't like the Joe Rogan podcast that was part of Spotify and he felt it was disinformation. And it was a, you know, a bit of a story bubbled up and then all the other aging, you know, rockers like David Crosby and Joni Mitchell, they all backed him up. And when you look back at that, I mean, it made for some interesting stories and it was, it kind of made Neil Young look cool, you know, but did it make any impact at all? Neil Young storming off of Spotify. Um, you know, I, I think he made a point when it came to this business of uh, COVID disinformation and some of the other things that were happening with the Joe Rogan experience. Um, Spotify did end up pulling some of the episodes. So his point was made. Other artists followed I guess it made a point, but in the end, uh, everybody kind of kissed and made up. Yeah. And Neil Young, I think, I think if you go to um, Sirius Satellite, X, uh, Sirius XM Satellite Radio, I think there is a high resolution Neil Young channel on there right now. So he got that, um, perhaps as a as 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 a reward for what yeah. he Spotify. Yeah, well, Neil Young's always on about the the high fidelity, and uh, he's very much into vinyl. Uh, I have to admit, I'm a bit of a vinyl collector, and I, I don't think I'm alone on that. Vinyl seemed to just continue to grow in 2022. What's What do you see for the future of vinyl? Vinyl grew in uh, most territories. It shrunk slightly. The market shrunk slightly in Canada, not because I think that we're necessarily getting tired of vinyl, but because it became so damned expensive. There was a, a shortage of polyvinyl chloride, which increased the price of an average normal record to beyond $50, which is insane. Yeah. And until we get the, uh, the record plant situation sorted out, all the plants are running at full tilt, 
and uh, you know people like Taylor Swift are are sucking up all the capacity and all the polyvinyl chloride. Until that gets resolved, uh, we're going to see um, a little bit of a stagnation in Canada. In the United States, uh, more vinyl was sold than ever. In the UK, more vinyl was sold than ever. I think that we are uh, in Canada, and I have no proof of this, but my gut tells me that our our slight decline in vinyl sales this year has to do with a supply chain issue and with inflation. Yeah, that makes sense. And one of the the records I'm kind of hoping to get for Christmas is the uh, Beatles revolver reissue with the four discs. And it's not cheap, but uh, it's doing very well. So I guess the Beatles are never going away. Oh, no, they're not. They Their organization is so smart. And they, you know, this is a band that broke up in 1970. So they've been broken up for 52 years, more than 52 years, coming up on 53. Yet we're still talking about them. We're still playing their music. We're still buying their records. <laughs> it is, uh, it's, it's absolutely remarkable. Uh, it tells you exactly how good of a band the Beatles were. It tells you how universal the Beatles music is and tells you how good of an organization is, um, has stewardship of of their of their legacy yeah and it goes back to what you were saying about how uh recording technology has not really changed all that much and these are records made in the 60s but they still sound great and the raw materials are so good that the new computer technology can enhance it and make it sound even better so that's yeah that's that's what giles martin who is the son of uh george martin the original producer of the beatles this is his whole thing is going back and looking at those original Beatles master tapes from the Abbey Road Studios and uh, turning them into something um, for the 21st century. Now, there are some people who aren't really crazy about this because, you know, these songs, these albums were masterpieces in their own right the first time. So if you are trying to improve them, is this kind of like to add high resolution to the Mona Lisa? Yeah. It's so a, there is a debate. There is a debate there. However, you know there there are some Beatles records that do benefit from from uh, being um, cleaned up. Um, the Abbey Road album, for example, which was the first Beatles album that recorded in stereo. Um, listening to it after Giles Martin got a hold of it is like looking through what you thought was a clean, clear glass window, but it had a film on it. And then suddenly the film is gone and you begin to hear things deep within the mix that you would, you haven't heard since 1969. Yeah. <laughs> well, nobody's heard it as a matter of fact, because it, it was, it was, it was hidden in the murk of the original uh, recording. Yeah. And I, I love that technology that Giles Martin now has where they can uh, zero in on different instruments and then take that out of the mix individually and then remix it because i can't wait till they go back to some like old blues songs maybe hank williams and and sep could they were all recorded in mono and you know just isolate all the tracks and then remaster it that might sound really interesting well this brings us to artificial intelligence peter jackson when he did the get back documentary uh had a mono nagra tape recorder uh to work with and he used artificial intelligence on those mono recordings to blow up the audio for the get back sessions into something absolutely spectacular. And that technology is never going away. It is, it's really, really something, especially if you listen to the original sound and then you listen to what the artificial intelligence did to the sound. It's amazing.
Yeah, very interesting. And I guess that's that's new for 2023. And before I let you go, Alan Cross, uh, I'm, I'll just ask you, what was the best song of 2022? I really don't know that's a good question um put you on the spot i mean you listen how much music do you listen to in a day oh god it's it's impossible to tell i mean i I listen to music professionally eight hours a day for sure and as soon as i find something that i really like i move on to something i have to move on to something else um i'm going to be really obscure um i will say I don't even know if it came out this year but it's the one that's probably been played most in my car there's a uh Irish band from Dublin called Fontaine's DC. And uh, they have a song called Boys in the Better Land that I really, really liked. I mean, I'm sorry, it's obscure. Yeah. But if you like, uh, if, if you like the rough and tumble barroom brawl rock and roll, this is this is it. Yeah, well, I mean, you you have to have your own music. <laughs> you listen you to so much. Yeah. It can all be, you know, Harry Styles is as good as Harry Styles is. Uh, my daughter, aforementioned uh you know she grew up with harry styles and she loves him and you see a guy like him and he he seemed to have a pretty good year 2020 yeah he sure did yeah he was in that movie well he was, uh, uh, he was one of the uh, he was one of the top 10 most searched artists on google in 2022 in fact he was the only western artist that made the top 10 searches on google when it come when it came to songs yeah well, that's interesting. And he seems like an artist who who understands 70s music as well. He seems, you know, that kind of Fleetwood Mac sound that he sometimes delves into. Yeah. Or he could have just discovered that sound independently. We don't really know. Yeah. <laughs> well, Alan Cross, I want you to have a, a great Christmas. And uh, is there any are there any records or anything you're hoping to get for Christmas? Uh, I've got my eye on a uh, particular set of headphones. Nice. So we'll we'll see if anything happens there. Excellent. So well, maybe the person who might buy them for you is listening to this, and uh, so so good luck with those. All right. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for talking to us, Alan Cross, the host of the ongoing history of new music, and uh, we really appreciate you taking the time. See you later. Always fun to talk to Alan Cross, and that's one thing about Christmas and why I miss physical media. We were talking about physical cash, but uh, I used to love getting records for Christmas. I still do get records for Christmas uh, and, you know, CD box sets. And the, the one I really want, I mentioned it there, is uh, the Beatles Revolver box set, the vinyl box set. It's not cheap, but there's, you know, like the remastered version. There's a version of it in mono, and then there's a bunch of outtakes, and uh, it looks pretty cool. And the thing that that is interesting to me, uh, Ryan O'Donnell, is the is the technology now. Because like Alan was saying, are we messing with the Mona Lisa when we take these tapes and we change them around? Uh, but but now, because of Peter Jackson, the filmmaker, he has figured out ways, these computer people have figured out ways, they can listen to a mono track, one tape of, say, Hank Williams recorded on stage with one microphone on the in the Grand Old Opry in like 1950 or 1949, and they they can separate the bass, guitar, drums, 
and the vocals, and they can separate that, and then they can beef that up and make it sound better. And I think you could take a lot of old music like uh, Hank Williams and really make it new again. I think that I don't see that as messing with the Mona Lisa. What do you think? No, not at all. I mean, if we could look at the Mona Lisa layer by layer, I'd love to see every sketch from final to or first to final but i mean you can do this right now on apple music there's dolby atmos which is very heavy surround sound spatial audio one of my favorite bands are the talking heads and they put out all of their catalog under dolby atmos and i swear to god like i heard listening to once in a lifetime in dolby atmos it sounds like a different song you notice little things that are hidden in the background are now brought to the front and it changes the whole listening experience, but it's still the same song. And it's really exciting because it's like you have two ways to listen to your favorite songs. And uh, that technology, I I think it's only going to get even better. It's probably one of the coolest things that has uh, come from this very digital heavy music industry now. I've been reading about the Dolby Atmos mix of all the Talking Heads albums, and I haven't heard it yet. But say you're you're on a streaming service, Apple Music or Spotify. What do you need to hear Dolby Atmos in its form and make it sound good? Headphones. You need That's a it. good pair of headphones. That's all you need. And get yourself some surround sound, some proper cans, and you'll you'll know exactly what I mean. Yeah, very, very interesting. I, I, I like it. And I, I guess uh, Alan makes a point that uh, the, the old music is so popular. Like Kate Bush came back and the Beatles are as popular as ever. And uh, they may run out of old music. And if they don't continue to farm new music that's popular, they could literally run out of music. But I somehow uh, don't think that could ever happen. <laughs> Could you think about all the bands there are in the world? There's a lot of bands. <laughs> this is the Shift Podcast. Are you okay with trading cards, baseball Ooh. cards, Pokemon, Magic the Gathering? I'm a big hockey card uh, collector. Oh, you are? I do. I have some good cool. old hockey cards. Uh, and there's a lot of collectible cards. I have old Batman cards that are Wait, really, really rare. I've got uh, a couple of Beatles cards. Uh, but uh, a former U.S. president, uh, clearly strapped for cash. <laughs> Is that a trading card? Uh, we found out today after teasing a major announcement, Donald Trump launched his own exclusive digital trading cards, uh, which are also, they're not really trading cards. They're also, also non-fungible tokens, NFTs. Uh, and he did it on his Truth Social account on Thursday. And I don't know if it went that well. Hello, everyone. This is Donald Trump, hopefully your favorite president of all time, better than Lincoln, better than Washington, with an important announcement to make. I'm doing my first official Donald J. Trump NFT collection right here and right now. They're called Trump Digital Trading Cards. These cards feature some of the really incredible artwork pertaining to my life and my career. It's been very exciting. You can collect your Trump Digital Cards just like a baseball card or other collectibles. Here's one of the best parts. Each card comes with an automatic chance to win amazing prizes like dinner with me. I don't know if that's an amazing prize, but it's what we have. Wow. So Ryan, 
your thoughts? <laughs> oh, he's just such a sad man. Okay, so I have so many thoughts. Okay, so first off, uh, why would you not just call them Trump trades or something like that? Right. You, you, why would you call it the Trump trading card NFT? It's, the name is bad, okay? The art is hilariously terrible on all of these. They look like the things that you see like superimposed on the flags at the rallies, which is maybe intentional, actually, thinking about mm-hmm. it. Um, but I just I just don't understand it because Trump has this isn't the first time Trump has done a very questionable merchandising deal. Uh, there's Trump stakes from the 90s when he sold stakes at the Sharper Image, which is an electronic store. There was the Trump b- uh, board game. Uh, you know, he has attached his name to some strange products. Trump but University, I still think which, which he had University. to pay millions of dollars because uh, students sued saying it was just yes. not up to scratch. Yeah, there's that. And I still think that this is the dumbest thing he's ever done, <laughs> even dumber than the stakes. And the reason I say that is because it's an NFT. So you're going to buy it with crypto and it's it's on that very up and down sketchy market. It's just so clearly a cash grab. And I, who is this for? I mean, sure, like diehard Trump fans might think this is kind of interesting. But I feel like if if you're buying this, you're only buying this for the chance to actually have dinner with him, which is probably just going to be McDonald's because that seems to be the only thing he'll have with people at press dinners. So I I just... It's just so funny to me. Like the video is one of the most entertaining things I've ever seen in my life. It is just so bizarre. It is so, so tacky. And as funny as it is, as funny as that is, in all seriousness, that does not seem like someone who himself is serious about running for president. He's announced that he's running for president. He's the only one who's done it so far for the uh, 2024 election. But saying your favorite president even jokingly better than lincoln better than washington i mean people talk about being presidential but who who would say that they were better than lincoln i mean that is that's just yeah. insane to me that is a person who is not serious about running for president yeah exactly it's just it's very goofy and uh it's it's it 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 doesn't give fundraising kind of like vibes. It's it's just a bit of a joke, and uh, I you can. It's so there's so many things to address here, and it's the quality too on the actual designs are just so hilariously bad. Yeah, and even people who like Trump, I've seen online think this is 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 really stupid now they're, they're gonna sell out he'll sell all of them he's got to die enough die hard enough base that they'll all sell out but uh also the fact that it's only they're a limited amount they're a hundred dollars us that's what like 120 yeah. 130 canadian uh and the fact that you it's digital you can't actually get a, a little it's so it's not really a trading card it's a it's a it's a screenshot of Donald Trump photoshopped onto various animals and superheroes and the chance to have dinner with them. Yeah. And as Rich in Nevada texted us, uh, 99 bucks US. Just point that out. Yeah, that's so much money. Wow. Like the most amount of money I've ever spent on a trading card (laughs) was a deck 
and it was $50 to buy a deck of Magic the Gathering cards. Like, right. it's it, for physical cards that I still have to this day. And, I, you know, you're not getting, you're not getting your money's worth. Yeah, of, of I, I hate to say it. I've spent cards. more than 100 bucks on a card. But uh, it was worth oh, it. That's okay. And they're still worth it. Uh, so are you okay? Let's continue on. Are you okay with iguanas? Iguanas. Iguanas. I th- yeah, you know what? I think lizards are cool. I, I like lizards. Yeah. And uh, I think they get a bit of a bad rap. You know, they get tied into the whole, like, snake thing. Yeah. But they just seem like really chill kind of creatures. I would never want to take care of one. Uh, but I think, you know, like, living in a in a tropical place and kind of looking out your window and seeing a lizard on a tree. That seems, that seems cool to me. Yeah. I would much rather that than a magpie. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Perhaps because iguanas are kind of a staple of, of let's just face it. It's our favorite chaotic state, Florida. I don't know how things work in Florida, which from your description sounds like a colorful lawless swamp. (laughs) So one of Florida's uh, invasive iguanas wreaked havoc in one of the state's uh, southern cities this past Wednesday. The city of Lake Worth Beach announced that one of these scaly green creatures was responsible for a big, a large-scale outage of power. Tonight, the lights are back on for customers here in Lake Worth Beach after a major power outage in the city. More than 1,400 customers were left in the dark Wednesday morning. Now, what's going on with this car? Abigail Kowal with Happy Car Sales is one of them. I thought, there's got to be a car accident. Oh, my gosh, what happened? Everything just shut down. My computers weren't working. Thankfully, there wasn't a cause for panic, unless you're this guy. An iguana? That's all it was? Really? Officials say the creepy crawler came in contact with a transformer here at the 6th Avenue substation. And although it may sound unusual, surprisingly, this isn't the first time it's happened. Oh, 100%. Lake Worth? Yeah, they're known for power outages. This year, there's been three separate incidents involving iguanas, according to a city spokesman. And it never ends well for the iguana, because he ended up fried. Very... Yeah, I wonder if it tastes like chicken. <laughs> you know what? I think it does. <laughs> it probably does. I've never had alligator, but I imagine it tastes like that. No, apparently uh, they, they say that, uh, like in the rainforest, for example, when they burn down an acre of rainforest so they can grow uh, or raise cattle, that there's more meat in the rainforest uh, that you could, could eat if you wanted to because of things like iguanas, stuff like that. And really? Yes. Wow, that's... Ta- well, they, they grow more than five feet long, and uh, they're they known for feasting on vegetation, bird eggs, and dead animals. So there you go. Oh, look at that. <laughs> that. Well, I think it's also important that we don't judge Florida too hard on this, because earlier this year, a squirrel uh, knocked out power to a town in B.C. on chewing out on a power line. So it does, you know, animals just <laughs> taking down our entire civilization by accidentally chewing on something. It, it happens all over the world, not yeah. just in Florida, and think but about especially in Florida. What that was like for the squirrel, too. Like just that split yeah. second, it was like, uh-oh. <laughs> I have made an error. <laughs> <laughs> and you're completely fried. Okay, let's move on. Are you okay with fire stations? 
fire stations. I haven't been to one since I was a kid, but uh, those are some great memories of uh, of going and getting the tour. Although I remember this was in when I lived in Burlington, and I had never been around a fire, like a real fire. You know, you go to a campfire and it's hot, and they were doing a demo. Uh, the firefighters were doing a demo just out the fire station of, you know, how quickly a fire can spread inside a small little room. And so they built a fake kind of apartment outside and they had all these trucks and they lit it on fire. And, you know, I'm very far away and I could feel the heat from afar. And in that moment, I realized how terrifying that is. And then watching all the firefighters just run in, you know, no hesitation to take it all out. I, that's when I got a true appreciation for what they do. So, yeah, yeah, I remember going uh, growing up as a kid, we got to go to the fire station and I just remember getting stickers (laughs) and that was the most exciting (laughs) thing. We got stickers and and, pictures and I just in the big engine. And I remember thinking how cool these guys had it because they were playing volleyball and they were, you know, it, it seems like they have they have it easy. But when it when things, you know, when when it goes down, you want to have those guys because they're good at it. These, these firefighters. And this is kind of an interesting story. Firefighters, they didn't have to travel far to fight a fire on Wednesday afternoon in Richmond, Virginia. The fire, let's just say it was very close to home. Videos submitted to CBS 6 News showed a fire shooting from the roof of the Richmond, Virginia Fire Station 8. It only took a half hour to extinguish the flames, but the damage was uh, significant. No word yet on the cause of the ironic fire. It was an ironic fire. Uh, it was very hot and ironic. Incredibly, fires at fire stations happen <laughs> a little more frequently than you might think. Uh, for example, this happened three years ago in Boston. Firefighters had returned from a call last night around 11 p.m. Uh, it was four of them, and they were hunkering down on the second floor when smoke alarms and the smell of smoke alerted them to something going on on the first floor, and they encountered the engine truck on fire. Now, uh, again, two firefighters were taken to the hospital with smoke inhalation. The chief tells us how difficult it can be when responding to an incident in your own firehouse. Getting a call like this certainly uh, get you up and get you moving pretty quickly. Uh, the biggest concern that we have uh, was with our own members and their life safety. Uh, knowing that everybody's okay is our first priority. Yeah, there you go. In fact, uh, Guinness recently recognized the uh, Manistee Fire Department Station in Michigan, which opened in 1889 as the world's oldest continuously manned and operating fire station. Pretty cool. Huh. 1889. So uh, one final one. Are you okay with the World Cup? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Uh, It's a really interesting spectacle to really see it and the engagement. Uh, I've been trying to get more into soccer and enjoy it a little bit more, but I'm not quite there yet. So I'm hoping by the time the North American World Cup uh, hits literally Canada and the U S and Mexico and to see that whole spectacle across the entire continent. Uh, I hope by then I'll be really into the world cup right now. It's like a 50, 50. I think it's going to be an exciting world cup in four years because Canada is one of the co-hosts with the U S and Mexico. And I think in four years, the Canadian team 
those players are going to be even better because they have the experience of, oh, yeah. of this tournament that they've just had. Uh, and the final game is on Sunday morning, by the way. It's between Argentina and France. So that's going to be amazing. But uh, the amazing thing is all these players, a lot of them on the Canadian team are going to be playing all over the globe for teams like uh, Alfonso Davies. He's playing for uh, Munich. So, you know, that's high level stuff. So they're going to be even better. So I think it's going to be quite exciting. But this World Cup is kind of interesting for an, uh, another reason. Uh, for the first time in history, not a single British soccer fan was arrested at the World Cup. <laughs> well done. Yes, Very well nice. done. Jolly good. Not a single arrest in Qatar in the Middle East uh, of anybody from the UK. And I guess it's partly because uh, at the last minute they announced they weren't going to serve beer in the stands. Yeah, no booze and no. Uh, yeah, there's just basically taking away the fuel to the fire, which is. Yeah, I can see the reasoning there. Because all of a sudden, you, you know, without beer, without lager, the British soccer hooligan is just a British guy, a polite British guy drinking tea. So that's pretty interesting. For the first time in history, not a single British fan was arrested at the World Cup. And don't forget, as I mentioned, the final of the World Cup is on Sunday morning. It'll be live 10 o'clock Eastern time, 7 o'clock Pacific time, Argentina and France. And France uh, had to beat Morocco to get in. And Morocco was the team that knocked out Canada. And, and you, kind of an interesting thing, you know, there was a, a real bidding war between the two bids for the World Cup in 2026. And uh, the Canada-U.S.-Mexico coalition won the bid. But the other country that really wanted it, Morocco. So there you yeah. go. There you they go. almost had it for this year, too. Yeah. Yeah, they almost had it. So uh, that's Are You Okay? Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 